0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Annabella Breck, and today we'll be talking to Benjamin Dongle about his new book, The 500-Year Rebellion, Indigenous Movements and the Decolonization of History in Bolivia. Benjamin Dongle, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Ben, I wonder if you could kick things off today by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, so I'm um, I'm a journalist. I teach public communication at the University of Vermont in the Department of Community Development and Applied Economics. Uh, I have I got my PhD in history, focusing on Latin American history from McGill University in Montreal. Um, I've worked as a journalist throughout Latin America for over 15 years. I've written uh, three books on Bolivia. With an emphasis on Bolivia and reported on human rights, politics, protest movements around the region for places like Vice, The Guardian, Al Jazeera, NACLA report on the Americas. And um, I came to focus on Latin America in the early 2000s during a, a shift to the left in the halls of power and ended up writing about that throughout that tumultuous period into today and um, I came to write this book as a result of those experiences. The 500-Year Rebellion comes out of my doctoral research um, and is a result of years of archival research and uh, many, many interviews with indigenous activists and leaders in Bolivia.
0: In your introduction, you lay out the contemporary context of your research, a period of Bolivian history largely defined by the presidency of indigenous Aymar and Evo Morales, and punctuated by historical symbolism, promise, and aspiration. This is apparent in everything from quotidian dialogue to presidential discourse, as you show in your book. Over the course of your research, what first prompted you to notice these influences, and how did that bring you to write the 500-Year Rebellion?
1: So in 2003, I worked as a journalist in Bolivia, and uh, during a period of major upheaval in what came to be called Bolivia's gas war. This was a conflict over a plan to privatize and export Bolivian gas, basically extend the privatization of Bolivian gas um, for a very low price to the U.S. And people in Bolivia rose up against this plan, which they saw as a continuation of 500 years of looting of of the country, of their natural resources by foreign corporations and governments. And during these protests, people rose up to say, we want our national, our, our gas used for national development. We want our natural resources to be used for national development. And the president at the time, Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada, who was known as Goni, um, repressed these protests and, um, and the, the protests morphed into a, a deeper rejection of Goni's politics. It represented neoliberalism for many Bolivians, a harsh economic um, ideology, which, uh, ripped resources and um, and political agency from many working class and, and poor sectors in the country over over decades. So during the gas war, when I was there, people were setting up road blockades in the streets. And road blockades are very important in Bolivia in a place where, at that time especially, there aren't many paved roads. And once protesters block major highways, um, it really puts pressure on the government as a form of protest for the government to to pay attention to those protesters. And so at the barricades at this time, people were making references to 500 years of rebellion, to 500 years of resistance against what they saw as the recolonization of Bolivia by, in this case, of um, modern corporations and, and neoliberal governments. And they also spoke about how many of them were carrying on the traditions of Tupac Qatari, an 18th century indigenous Aymara rebel leader who um, in late 1700s, uh, 1781, 1780, 1781, um, organized um, an indigenous army to lay siege to colonial La Paz when it was in control of the Spanish and um, created basically barricades around that city to put the region back in indigenous hands so that, as Qatari said, we alone will rule once again. And that those barricades, that siege of La Paz, um, stayed alive in the imaginations and the histories and the oral histories um, in Bolivia from below, passed from person to person through activist networks. Um, it wasn't a history that was championed and celebrated in official discourse or in um, mainstream textbooks and in histories of the country, the history of Tupac Qatari's rebellion and of other rebellions was really something that was carried on through oral traditions um, over over centuries. And um, so so when I was witnessing this, this resurgence of this Qatarista type of, of activity, of this activism at the barricades, I thought, who has been maintaining these histories? How is it? How have these how these memories and these histories of resistance from Qatari, but also of other rebel leaders in, in Bolivia, who, how have these been maintained? And that's what that's what kind of led me to the idea for the 500 Year Rebellion, this book. And uh, in following these questions, um, I, I I was able to to put some of the pieces together and follow, follow these threads to realize that. That when people set up barricades and, and echo Qatari, and when um, indigenous leaders cite this 500 years of resistance against Spanish colonization, and when they they put the indigenous martyrs and rebels on the banners and placards in their marches, they're really they're really carrying on a deep tradition um, that has been a part of indigenous movements in Bolivia for for centuries. And my book looks particularly at how indigenous movements in the 20th century. And into the twenty-first, have picked up those threads and carried on those traditions, and um, and so I look at the ways that that those um, those tools, those historical tools of resistance, have been used from um, from basically uh, you know for five hundred years, but also looking up to to the Evo Morales administration. So, I in the book, I look at the ways that these traditions have been carried on through oral history through um, street barricades where people are practicing these these um, these memories and these histories in action. Um, I look at the ways that activist scholars have researched different rebel histories and created pamphlets and radio programs um, about them. I looked at the ways that indigenous movements have created, have created manifestos that that bring up the story of the IU, a form of community organizing that goes back thousands of years in the Andes. I the, uh, brings up the IU as a, as a kind of nucleus of political organization. So the sustaining the reproduction of these histories is hard work on the ground, and it's been done by Indigenous activists for, for a long time. And I, I look at specific instances of how history has been u- used as a tool for revolution, for liberation, by activists, and the book is based on extensive interviews with a lot of these leaders and archival research, um, looking at the documents and the material they've published uh, over these years.
0: In chapter one, we're introduced to two strands of indigenous, indigenous Andean ideology, largely born out of indigenous responses to the Bolivian National Revolution in the 1950s. Qatarismo, which, as you mentioned before, is named after Tupac Qatari, and Indianismo. How did these two ideologies form, and where did they they diverge and overlap?
1: So, in the wake of the National Revolution, which took place in 1952, um, a number of very historic uh, revolutionary reforms took place in terms of land reform, uh, voter enfranchisement, and... um, and, and, and basically ending the hacienda and, and bringing a lot of the rural poor um, out of poverty and out of subservience in a kind of neo colonial model. However, um, a lot of indigenous activists and, and um, indigenous people around the, the countryside came to resist some of the, the policies of the National Revolution and, and particularly as it morphed into. Um, a series of dictatorships starting in 1964, um, when military di- military rule kind of um, began and and staggered up until the early 1980s through a series of coups and military leaders, which were were all different. But but during this period of the 1960s 1970s, Qatarismo and Indianismo came to emerge as um, focal points in this resistance against state oppression against indigenous people. And particularly state assimilation uh, efforts to say we, where the, where the state was um, wanting to, for example, um, you know, ignore and suppress indigenous languages, indigenous dress, indigenous traditions and governance, to say we want you to be peasants in a union, not you know, Aymara, Quechua people in an I.U. organized under your own traditions that you know that go back hundreds of years, we want you to be a kind of instrument of, our, of the state. And through Catarismo, um, uh, particularly, which, as you mentioned, brought up the name of Qatari as a kind of banner of its movement. Um, in the 1970s, you have uh, leaders like Genaro Flores, uh, um, uh, a leader in the highlands of La Paz who wanted to break away from what was called the military campesino pact in the, um, in the 1970s in particular, and, um, which was a form of subjugation of of campesino indigenous campesino unions, and he wanted to create an independent union um, that represented the true needs, desires politics of the of the rural indigenous majority and break with the government and He did that um, through a series of, of and, and years of clandestine organizing against um, state oppression of the of, of the union and Throughout these efforts, what was really interesting in terms of my research was the ways that uh, Genaro, um kind of rescued Qatari from oblivion in a way. Uh, people had been talking about him, obviously, for, for a long time. But in this political context, Hinato and other historians like Roberto Chokikanki um, and, and, and indigenous philosopher Fausto Renaga, uh, these people were involved in recovering and putting Qatari's history back on the map, and using Qatari as a symbol to say we aren't um, peasants; we're indigenous rebels. Uh, we have our own politics. We have our own our own um, languages, history. We want that to be respected. And Qatari was a symbol for that. Literally, um, his his image was uh, in one story um, when. When Cataristas were marching down La Paz on May Day, they had they were given um President Torres's image at the time, and we're talking about the early 1970s. And um they took that image, that portrait, and hid it under their ponchos and took out instead a portrait of Tupac Qatari as a kind of a banner of their struggle. And at the same time, you have people like Hinaro and other uh Qataristas saying. Uh, uh, launching the manifesto of Tiwanaku in nineteen seventy three which was a uh, reclaiming of indigenous rebel history and centering of um indigenous concepts such as aini uh, kind of Andean recip- Indian reciprocity where indigenous peoples were working together uh, were looking at political models where indigenous people were um focused on working together through uh, collaboration on, on the land, through the IU, which is a uh, often a network expanding across various ecological zones where where smaller communities are working together in the production, the political organization of their communities. This form of organization has persisted through the Spanish conquest and colonization into today. And so, Cateristas were lifting up the IU as well as a kind of nucleus of their organization, and so um, they did this through through organizing, campesino organizing on the ground, and the Indianistas uh, with people like uh, Constantino Lima, and um, and uh, and Luciano Tapia. Uh, these these leaders uh, orchest- uh, kind of articulated their demands within this period through the organization of political parties. So they were seeking political power through the elections, where Cataristas were more seeking um, a voice in political uh, intervention through the union. So the work of the Cataristas and the Indianistas throughout the 70s and into the 80s really laid the groundwork for a lot of the organizations that came afterwards, including the Andean Oral History Workshop, um, uh, uh, National Network of IUs, Colomac. And so looking at this, the, the history of these organizations really helps understand the background and the context for what emerged in the 80s and 90s and into today. And a lot, of the, a lot of the references to Qatari, to decolonization, to the IU, really owe a lot in contemporary times, really owe a lot to these early interventions from Qataristas and Indianistas in the 1970s. So that's an important part of the book as well.
0: In chapter three, roughly three decades after the national revolution that helped to prompt this sub-rebellion of sorts and in indigenous intellectualism, the unified syndical confederation of rural workers in Bolivia emerges amidst political turmoil. How does the indigenous Bolivian past inform and shape the aspirations, actions, and abilities of the Confederation and other Union efforts during the nineteen eighties?
1: Um I'm sorry, could you repeat could you repeat that question? I'm not Uh, I missed the date that you referred to.
0: Um, Yeah, sure. Uh, How does the indigenous Bolivian past inform and shape the aspirations, actions, and abilities of the Confederation in the 1980s, a few decades after the National Revolution, and this outburst of Catarista, Catarista and Indianista thought?
1: Great. So... Yeah, the Cesut Sebe, the, um, the campesino um, organization that Hernando Fernone started, had a pivotal role in the 1980s after the return to democracy in 83. And, and over that period, what they did was um, they would organize these road blockades around La Paz and around the country to pressure the government against austerity measures or in some cases, you know, in the 1970s and, and early eighties, against dictatorships, unelected governments, and they would pressure pressure the um, pressure the government and they used literal strategies that Tupac Qatari used in the late 18th century, strategies that um, included Plan Kuti, which is a which is an organization of of the the rocks basically that, that they would use for blockades that could be moved quickly. And then Plan Tarakchi, which is a, which is an organization of the blockades to what they said was strangle the city, and these were these were literal strategies that Qatari used, according to them, and are still used today by the Sejutsu Bay and other organizations. Um, and so, from their road blockades, um, they issued communiques in the in the nineteen eighties, uh, communiques that were published in, in newspapers and said at communiques which which. Were basically little like history lessons from the barricade, to say we are carrying on 500 years of resistance. We are carrying on Tupac Qatari's rebellion, and they did this um, really, really notably uh, using history as a tool at the barricades to um, position themselves as heirs of indigenous rebels, as as they said heirs of great civilizations, to say we aren't slaves, we aren't. Um, victims, we are heroes. We are protagonists of our own history, and history as a tool for us uh, as we as we as we organize. So, Cesar and and um did this from the barricades with their which, with their communiques, which I which I look at um, in detail as a part of the research in the book. And they also um, issued plans to reform uh, land uh, land well to, to uh, reform land reform from the, from the state level, and in their proposals in their new agrarian law uh, proposals, they, they did research and, and referenced back to um, the IU as a form of organization and, and recipro- reciprocal relationships working the land that really contested the government's way of, uh, of conducting land reform. And so these were also historical tools that the Session Bay used at the time.
0: In Chapter Four, you highlight the significance of the Andean Oral History Workshop in this decades-long process of the decolonization of Bolivian history. Can you talk more about the formation of the workshop and how their work fundamentally shaped public as well as academic discourse?
1: Yeah. So the Andean Information. Uh, the I'm sorry. The Andean. Um, uh, the Andean Oral History Workshop, the Toa, T-H-O-A. Um, was one of the most fascinating aspects of this research and i think of the book Uh, they started in 1983 was organized by um at the time a professor at the at the university at the main university of la paz silvia rivera kusikanki who is a pivotal intellectual um, historian activist um, who who helped found uh, the Toa? Who really led the founding of the Toa in 1983, along with many of her students and colleagues at the university, um, and among this group of, of roughly a dozen uh, students and professors, they reflected on the change and changes in the in the activism and the and the actions in the streets at this time, where you have. Um, Catadistas organizing in the street, you have campesino organiza- organizations resisting assimilation assimilation efforts. And they said, um, you know, we want to reflect the kind of changes in the streets, we want to reflect that in the classroom, in our own historical explorations. And in their reflections, they realized, and they, and they kind of discussed and shared the fact that um, these histories of resistance are not taught in the classroom. These histories of resistance are not shared as a part of official discourse of Bolivian history. Um, and they wanted to face the void and the emptiness around these histories in the archives, in the libraries, with oral history, and going back to their communities that they came from, and speaking with their elders, with their ancestors, and their parents and grandparents, um, in many of the communities that they came from. So many of the students that, that uh, Kusikanki, that Sylvia Rivera worked with, came from the countryside. Um, they spoke Aymara and Quechua. Uh, they came to the city, uh, in many cases, to study for the first time, living in the city. And as a part of the Toa's recovery of these histories, they went back to the countryside, and they described this as a process of self-investigation and of decolonization. They, they say they decolonized their own methodology as researchers by not just... Um, kind of mimicking what they said was the Western style of swooping into a community, doing a bunch of interviews, never to return. But instead, they decolonized their methodology of research by um, creating what they said was an commune or a common pot where different um, testimonies and oral recordings were put into a kind of common pot where they would explore um, one uh, research topic. They would put into this pot the um, archival documents, the newspaper documents that they found, and they would use, do this collectively and not just work among the, uh, the core members of the TOA, but extend this participation and this reflection out to the community members that they were interviewing. So the, the, the subjects or interviewees were a critical part of the process of the production of the histories, the collection, the formation of the questions for the interviews, and even had a role in the final production and, and distribution of the histories that the Toa produced. So one of the key um, stories that I focus on in the book that it was a key result of the Toa's early work in the 1980s was really the kind of rediscovery of this rural network of indigenous rebels and land defenders in the early 20th century. The Toa's rediscovery of the caciques of a network of indigenous leaders um, in the early 20th century, they were organized around the defense of community land and rights against the incursions of the Hacienda and the government to dispossess and private private organizations to dispossess uh, indigenous peoples of their land. And and the Caciques of Colorado's organized against this in a kind of un, relatively unprecedented at the time um, national network of hundreds of leaders that coordinated with each other and, and – uh, they went to court they went to political uh, talked with politicians uh, on behalf of their communities and one of the key leaders of this movement was Santos Marcatula Tula was um, w- was a part of this and, and when the when the Toa um, was looking into this they they said the members that i spoke about and i interviewed almost all of the Toa members for the book the um they said at the time the caciques apoledrados Santos Marcatula the, the history of this movement was virtually unknown, undiscussed, um, not talked about in Bolivia. And the Toa, with the work of community members and ancestors and people who had participated or were related to these caciques apolorados, the Toa put this story back on the map. And they did this through the Oya Comun uh, process. And they did this by reaching out to elders that were linked up to these caciques apolorados and Tula in particular, and speaking with them, speaking with their scribes, with their children, with um, people who uh, who knew these stories in their communities, and they put it together in a, um, in, a in a pamphlet, and, and it was translated. It was it was produced uh, as a as a, a radio program as well in Aymara and Spanish, and it reached across the country, and they, and they retold the story of Santos Marcatula and his national struggle. In Defense of his community in the highlands of Bolivia, and um that is a key that is a key part of the book that I look at and when I was with the Toa one rainy day in their offices, one of the many visits I made to them one time I went I was sitting there and they said, "Oh, would you like to learn more about you want to know learn more about Tula You should go we can meet with his son and I was astounded to learn that Tula's son was still alive, so Tula was killed um in, in the early 1940s, but I, I was astounded to hear that his son was still alive, and I left with a TOA member up to, from La Paz up to the city of El Alto. And we, we went to this um, low-level low house in a, in a kind of working-class neighborhood of El Alto, and I met Gregorio Barco Guarachi, Tula's last living immediate descendant, his, his last living son. And it was incredible to talk with, with Barco, um, through a translator from the Toa uh, in Aymara, he spoke only Aymara. He was o- almost entirely blind and deaf at that time. Uh, a few years ago, he was 96 years old, and though he was he was ill, and, um, and, and and diminished in this way, he became very animated when talking about his father, and he spoke to me about. Um, the kind of mythical qualities that his father had that helped him, these kind of supernatural qualities that he said helped him in his resistance. He said, when his father walked around carrying the papers of the community, meeting with judges and politicians, he walked, he traveled around the country by foot. And he said he could speak with plants, he could speak with animals. And he had this power so that when the authorities tried to kill him, um, uh, and uh, he he said, Barco told me, they tried to burn him, but he would not burn. They tried to drown him, but he would not drown. And these kind of mythical or supernatural powers or, or qualities that Tula had um, were something that the Toa didn't ignore. They looked into this. And myth created a window into deeper Andean meanings around political resistance. Uh, myth was something that was ignored by many historians or was completely you know, uh, not part of the account in courts or in the newspapers of the time. So, so hearing these these stories from Barco, and this was something that the Toa explored as well, um, really cre- created another window into into the meaning of these resistances. And and um, that was a very powerful experience to me for for me to meet with Barco and, uh, and do some of the, the same kind of oral testimonies, collecting these oral testimonies, which was such a core part of the Toa's work over so many years.
0: Yeah, that was a particularly fascinating part of the book in chapter five when you talk about uh, looking into Santos Marca Tula's uh, story and his history and relevancy, um, not just to his family and his community, but also to a you know broader indigenous movement across Bolivia. And something that I found particularly interesting um, is that is how Tula. Um, and other activists who joined him in the effort to resist the breakup, dispossession, and redistribution of indigenous land drew upon a 400-year-old legal history to resist these efforts. Can you talk a little bit more about how um, these turn-of-the-century indigenous activists used these very old histories in order to achieve legal recourse um, to protect their lands and their communities?
1: Yeah, definitely. This was a really fascinating part of the resistance, and it's still being used today by indigenous communities, which I can I can also talk about. Um, so, as a part of these, as a part of the Toas' work, um, uh, they found out that Santos Marcatula uh, had traveled uh, along with other caciques and had traveled around um, to different archives, historical archives in Bolivia. And other caciques had traveled outside of Bolivia to to, um, Lima, even as far away as Buenos Aires. And they were looking for some of the original land titles of their communities. So that when the government or, or private corporations or haciendas were seeking to dispossess their land, some of these titles said, our ancestors went to the mita which is a form of forced, um, basically, enslavement in the mines of Potosí by the Spanish, by the colonial powers and the Spanish in the 16th century. And these these titles said, our ancestors went to the Mita. They worked in Potosí. They paid their tribute. They paid their taxes so that they could own their land, their land, which, of course, was taken from them by the Spanish. But they had this title to say this, these 400-year-old titles. And Tula found these. Other caciques of Boerados found these, and they used them as tools in their legal and political struggle to say, this land is ours. This this document shows this. So they so they used these, these titles um, in their struggles, and the defense of those titles and the kind of preservation of them, literally of the, the physical document, was so important to these caciques. Um, and and they used them, and that was a profound... Uh, discovery or really a rediscovery by the Toa in the 1980s. Um, Sylvia Rivera Kusikanki talks about this this really um incredible uh process that they that the Toa uh went through when they when they found this out. Just just they were they were so impressed. Obviously it wasn't anything new uh but the Toa really put these pieces together as the Toa as Toa members describe um you know it was like ter- their their kind of work putting these histories together was like taking up a a letter that had been torn into many pieces and putting it back together like a puzzle. And so using those land titles was an important part of that. And it really shows how history is used as a tool of resistance in this longer process of decolonization. And incredibly, when I was back in Bolivia um, earlier this year, um, members of the Caracara nation, indigenous community in the lowlands of Bolivia and their leader, Tata Samuel Flores, I spoke with him, and he was at this time marching against, uh, you know, uh, in demands demanding um, in defense of his community's lands under the Morales government. So this is before Morales was overthrown earlier this year. This was in March, and 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 there are many, of course, movements protesting against Morales over the 14 years he's in power, as, many, as well as many communities supportive of the MAS government. But what Samuel that Flores from this community brought with him in a forty-day march to La Paz was the title to his land from the sixteenth century, and he was showing this to me and had stamps all over it from, you know, you know, proving its its legitimacy and 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 he's and he used the exact it was almost the exact same discourse that people like Tula had used, uh, you know, hundred years ago. He said. You know, this document shows that our ancestors went to the mines, paid their tribute, paid their taxes. This document shows that the land is ours. And he was using that in a struggle in contemporary Bolivia to, uh, you know, against the breakup of that community's land uh, in a different context under the Morales government. And so it was really incredible to hear these, these stories um, and how historical research is such a core part of these indigenous movements.
0: In your final chapter, you conclude with an emphasis on the power of community as well as continuity. The reconst- reconstitution of the IUs during the last two decades of the 20th century provided indigenous activists who had come to transform the Bolivian political landscape in the early 2000s with a historical purpose. How do the IUs and the history these communities embody and their continued existence allow indigenous activists to eventually pave the way for an indigenous president? In what ways are the powers of history at work here?
1: So the IUs in the the 1990s, um, this network of IUs, which, as I mentioned, go back to even before the Incan Empire as a form of community organizing, um, they worked with the Toa to reconstitute themselves legally and politically as IUs. And the Toa worked with them to gather oral histories about the, the boundaries of their territory, or the traditions of rotational leadership, the, the titles of the different uh, positions uh, within this local governance model and the, the names of those positions uh, and the traditions of, of specific uh, communities across the, particularly the highlands of Bolivia and near Potosí. And um, the IUs created a national network in 1997 called the Konamak, and they, they constituted a, a new political force that was, uh, you know, had the IUs as their as the as the core base of this national organization, which was also organized uh, in a traditional format um, as it went up to the ranks through the regional and national level into a national federation. So the Kodamak exists to this day, and they were a part in the late nineteen nineties into the early two thousands uh, uh, of what came to be a major rejection of the neoliberal model, a model of privatization instead of state control of services, a model of um, undermining workers' rights, a model of dispossessing uh, indigenous people of their land and suppressing the working class. Neoliberalism was on trial in the early 2000s in Bolivia, and the Cotamac, the Cesuzume, the Campesino Union, different currents of Indianismo and Catarismo, as well as the, the um, at this time, very important Cocalero movement, um, and different syndical and, and, and workers unions around the country organized against different um, neoliberal policies that sought to privatize water, that sought to privatize gas, that sought to um, implement international monetary fund and World Bank policies at the um, you know, on the backs of the working poor. And in 2000, 2003, when I started working in the country as a journalist, uh, these movements were really turning the country upside down, uh, united uh, in uh, regionally and politically against presidents like Gonzalo Sánchez de la against multinational corporations like Bechtel, one of the biggest multinational corporations in the world, against the IMF and the World Bank, and, um, they kicked out presidents. They kicked out multinational corporations, and they and through this wave of protests and uprisings, they ushered in um, the you know the opening uh, that created the space for Evo Morales to be elected as president in two thousand and five. He rode the wave of mobilizations. He was a part of them, not always you know in the front lines, but he was a, he was an important part of them, and uh, and that that culture, that radical political culture was what the MAS, the movement towards socialism, the political party of Evo Morales, emerged out of. And Morales, when he took office in 2006, after his election, he um, really institutionalized a lot of the victories that had already been won in the streets, socially, saying, we're gonna nationalize gas, we're going to create a constitutional assembly to, to decolonize the state and create a kind of institutionalized land reform on a deeper level. Um, and, and create more economic and political sovereignty against U.S. imperialism. So the different threads and currents of these kind of decolonized history, historical narratives in the early 2000s were very important. Uh, they were part of a very complex series of, of causes and, and discourses at this time which led to these grassroots political victories. So at the barricades, people talked about Qatari, as I mentioned. Um, they talked about... Um, you know, carrying on 500 years of resistance, the cocaleros, which which um, came to the forefront of this movement. So they're coca farmers who are growing coca leaves uh, to meet a legal market, a legal demand in the country. Um, organized into unions in the lowlands of Bolivia in particular, and, and the coca leaf, uh, which is used to kind of alleviate altitude sickness or or as a pain reliever, it's used among workers and miners, um, at, at, like kind of like coffee is widely in the U.S as a stimulant. People would chew these leaves or drink them in tea. And the symbol of the coca leaf was also a part of some of these discourses where it unified the struggle of the miners who chewed the coca leaf in the mines with the struggle of the indigenous um, peasants who, who produced the coca leaf and had used the coca leaf in, in ceremonies and in traditions. And so the coca leaf became a symbol for the Moss party of indigenous resistance, of anti-imperialism against the U.S.-led war on drugs of the labor movement. So there's that aspect, which is very present in the 2000s. You also have this political analysis, which has been sustained for centuries uh, regarding recognizing and dissecting the different forms of colonialism internally uh, and internationally and saying, you know, the new colonizers are Bechtel and IMF and the World Bank. And, and U.S. troops and military, and the U.S. embassy—these are the new. This is the new form of colonization, and this was a kind of political analysis uh, and lens that had been sustained for you know for decades uh, and, and centuries. And, and looking over the threads that I look at from the book from the 1950s into today, um, it's no surprise that this that these demands, this decolonial vision, and this decolonial. Um, analysis was so present at the barricades and these protests because it's been something that's been at the core of many movements for, for so long. Um, So these are some of the ways that history and these historical symbols and narratives were present during that period.
0: I want to conclude with a question about the recent ousting and departure of Evo Morales from presidential office. Throughout your book, you talk about the power of a historical consciousness of continuity how indigenous peoples in Bolivia understand themselves as part of this 500-year rebellion against the many vestiges of colonialism and neocolonialism. Of course, it's impossible to say now what his presidency and his departure will mean for indigenous Bolivian history, say a century from now. But I would like to ask you this. How is this moment in Bolivia's indigenous history, this sudden and it seems cataclysmic coup against Bolivia's first indigenous president, being understood and made sense of now? Indigenous activists and organizations in Bolivia have long utilized history as a means of resistance, as you indicate in your book. Can you gather how these activists and organizations are grasping this moment in their history?
1: Excellent question. And um, yeah, it's it's very complicated. Uh, and uh, so, so just to kind of piece it together, on October twentieth, there was an election. Uh, that Evo Morales was. Um, running in, um, and, and a series of conflicts followed that, the contested results of those elections and just kind of fast forward through really, a uh, complex series of events. Um, uh, Janine Añez took power on November 12th, following Evo Morales stepping down on November 10th in what is widely considered a coup. Um, because of the ways in which the the military and the police were involved in leading to Evo's ouster, and and because of the ways that the that the far right took advantage of the situation and filled the the political power vacuum, and then used the seizure of power to repress um, uh, dissidents, particularly people who supported Evo Morales, in in incredible, incredibly uh, horrific massacres following Anez's uh, assumption of power in, in what I see as a coup. Um, this isn't to erase the long, uh, you know, there are a lot of, this isn't, to, to describe it a coup in my mind does not erase the the very real and, and factual um, critiques that people had over Morales' 14 years in power. There were a lot of critiques against his consolidation of power, extractivism, um, environmental records, human rights records, And and uh, and and also desire to run again as president in spite of a 2016 referendum that that uh, where the people decided to bar him from running again. Um, So these grievances accumulated into protest against Morales after the October 20th election. At the same time, there's a lot of there over this time has been a lot of support for the Morales government in terms of its policies around economic sovereignty, indigenous rights, um, land reform uh, and economic Policies which have really lifted a lot of um, some of the poorest sectors of the country out of poverty and empowered marginalized sectors of the country. So um, there's a lot of there's a lot of pros and cons to the Morales government over fourteen years, and um, that shouldn't be ignored. Um, by describing the situation on uh, November tenth and twelfth as as a coup, I think it was a series of very complex forces, but in the end, it was a coup that took place with the, which the right took advantage of. And has used that to um, repress uh, repress people and and uh, clamp down on democracy and create a politics of vengeance against the Moss and its allies. And I think it should be denounced. And I think it should be denounced in terms of the U.S. blessing of this process, um, which which Donald Trump did. So that, given there have been a very um, that said, there have been a, a lot of really striking. Ways that these continuity that, that these issues of, of decolonizing history have been at play following the coup, so immediately following um, Evo Morales being forced out of office when Evo stepped down and, and left the country, um, some of the police that had declared mutiny against Evo in the days prior burned the Wifala flag and other Members of the of the dissident groups that were protesting Morales burned the Huayra flag around the presidential palace, took them off their, their police uniforms, and um, this is something that connects the dots to what I talk about in my book. Um, the Wipala flag is a multicolored rainbow flag that represents the indigenous the many indigenous nations in Bolivia, which which is over forty three different different indigenous nations, primarily Aymara, Quechua, and Guarani. But the flag represents these nations, these cultures, these histories, these languages, and to desecrate it, to burn it like that, um, really outraged a lot of people. The the wapala had also been used by the Moss government as um, as a symbol of indigeneity and indigenous liberation, and the wapala had been used as a as a kind of um, symbol of the of the Moss on planes, on uniforms, in a lot of. Uh, Rallies and and political material, so so the, the burning of it also was a rejection of the ma. So but what happened right after this was really these incredible protests and mobilizations in defense of the Wipala, where you have thousands and thousands of people in the streets of Bolivia protesting uh, the desecration of the Wipala, which is really a desecration of the the the, the kind of indigeneity in the country and the, and the diversity of indigenous nations in the country. And they're, they're saying, you know, you can't touch this flag. You can't use it in this way. You can't desecrate it in this way. Many of them also, um, uh, you know, they they had it uh, in rallies and it was just so many with balas. back in the early two thousands. When I started working in the country, you didn't really see with around that much, as much as, you know right after this coup happened. I mean there were so many of these flags everywhere. I'm talking about, about La Paz, but also in other other cities around the country. And it was incredible to see these rallies and then uh watching watching video reports of military jets flying low over these rallies. Um, and that to me just evoked the periods of dictatorship that Bolivia has overcome. Um, but it evoked the periods of dictatorship of the 1970s when the Cataristas, the Indianistas, Renato Flores were starting to really use the Wipala on a more mainstream political level uh, as a symbol, and they were also using it to resist military suppression. So that that image to me was really um, striking and tragic to, to see that kind of history, those, those gains rolled back. So the Wipala is another symbol of that. And another um in this period of resistance against the Anya's regime and in the push for democracy um, during these dark days, uh, there were a series of road blockades. I think it was 121 different road barricades set up around the country by Moss supporters against the Anya's government. And they were literally trying to strangle the cities and pressure the government into um, meeting their demands. And that that was the exact... Language and strategies that I talk about so often in my book and that and the activists use over this time to say we are the heirs of these struggles we are carrying on Qatari's legacy um, before Qatari was killed he said he's he's said to have have, have uh, said, "You can kill me, but I will return as millions and it's this phrase that's often repeated politically, but it's it's um you know it shouldn't be discounted because it really it really centers. Um, the, the role of this historical analysis and these historical tools at the barricades. So, so after audience took power, they were these 121 barricades were talking about that and literally trying to strangle the city, the cities in the same way that Qatari did. So that to me um, just brings back these same threads and echoes these same uh, narratives and discourses around centering um, these historical tools in the resistance now against a very undemocratic government. Uh, There are elections on the horizon for May third, scheduled for May third now in Bolivia, and um, different political parties are organizing and and putting candidates forward. The MAS is participating in this as well, but Evo Morales is not, and Norris is vice president. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the ways that that this political these political tools are being used now, as I as I've witnessed.
0: Great. Thank you so much for all of that information. We've taken up a lot of your time today, but before we wrap up, I have one last question for you. What are you working on now?
1: So I'm, I'm looking at the, trying to trying to put together the pieces of these, these events uh, around the coup um, and the, the October 20th election. It's incredible the level of act of things that have happened since October 20th. A lot of people expected a kind of peaceful uh, result or transfer of power or or electoral victory for Evo, but it's really been some of the most eventful moments in Bolivian history. And I think historians and journalists and and researchers and, and everyone will be picking the events of these days apart for a long time, debating them, and I'm trying to do the same, really, understand what happened, um, put the pieces together I'm planning uh, more research trips to Bolivia to to do that, but also look particularly at the ways that history uh, is being used as a tool of resistance in Bolivia today under, under, under this current situation.
0: Ben, that sounds like another very important project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care.
1: Thank you so much.